If we feel irritable, fatigued, and frequently under stress, we might need more magnesium. Keep listening on to find out only here on the People Scientist Podcast. People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 122, where I aim to arm us with some scientific evidence so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every episode. I hope that you listening right now, I hope that you are doing well today. Thank you for bringing me into your day. And I hope that I can bring something new and interesting for us to ponder together. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I came across a really interesting review article published by Pickering and colleagues in the journal Nutrients in 2020 about how in times of stress, magnesium becomes even more important in order to combat that stress response. But over time, Stress may lead to a magnesium deficiency, and this makes it harder for our brain and our body to cope with the stress. So today we are going to talk about the importance of magnesium in coping with stress and our mental and physical health. But before we jump into today's topic, let's start off with that fun foregone fact segment. Back in 1890, nearly 2,000 people were surveyed and asked, what is it in this world that you fear most? In fact, they were given a list of 298 things that could be a potential fear. Now, what do you think people back in 1890 reported as their top fear? If you can believe it, they reported thunder and lightning. I wonder why they would fear thunder and lightning so much. Perhaps because it's loud and at that time maybe not well understood by everyone. In fact, the United States Weather Bureau reported between the years of 1890 and 1893 that on average 196 people died from a lightning strike every year. So I suppose people may have feared being struck by lightning back then. Interestingly, the death by kick of a horse in New York was 50% greater than that of death by lightning. But fear from being kicked by a horse wasn't even in the top list of fears, despite its greater risk to people. I wonder what people today, 130 years later, would say is their top fear. What do you think? Now, when I looked up quickly some different surveys to see the top fears reported recently, many survey results included fearing illness, violence, lack of finances, and even public speaking as a top fear. It's interesting how the fears have changed over the years, isn't it? Now, let's get into the core takeaways of today's topic 
on magnesium, stress, and our health. Scientists believe that a stress, whether that be a psychological stress, like a demanding job or a demanding schedule, or a physical stress, like reducing calories and intense exercise, that these stressors may increase our need for magnesium. That is because magnesium helps to counteract this stress response. Now, I like to think of magnesium as the mediator in a conflict between two people. The mediator is aiming to bring about a compromise and balance. But if we are deficient in magnesium because we don't get enough in our diet, or if we have a high demand because of a chronic stressor, then that mediator can't do its job. Thus, we may battle with symptoms like irritability, fatigue, mild anxiety or nervousness, muscle weakness, and stomach upset. So if we think that we might be low in magnesium, and chances are we are, as there are estimates that over 75% of us are not getting enough magnesium, then what are some good food sources of magnesium that we can add to our diet? Well, for example, we can get our daily amount of magnesium by combining these four foods. One ounce of pumpkin seeds, one cup of cooked spinach, one ounce of dark chocolate, and one banana every day. Now, In today's episode, I'll get into these details and much more. So keep listening on to hear those scientific details. Magnesium is a mineral that we must obtain from our diet regularly in order to ensure a balance within our physiology and to promote and maintain overall health. Schwalfenberg in the journal Scientifica in 2017 wrote a review on the importance of magnesium for our health. Now, magnesium is the fourth most common mineral in the human body, after calcium, sodium, and potassium. And in the average 70-kilogram individual, which is 154 pounds, they have about 25 grams of magnesium stored in the body. Magnesium is primarily stored in our bones. Magnesium is incredibly important as it plays a significant role in tons of pathways and reactions in our body. For example, magnesium is necessary for reactions involving energy production, as magnesium is found in the powerhouse of our cells, the mitochondria, and is necessary to help produce the energy molecule ATP. As a result, it has been observed that an individual deficient in magnesium may have low energy levels and fatigue. Magnesium is also pivotal in our muscles being able to contract, in our nerves being able to function as well as to help control our blood glucose levels and our blood pressure. It is important in how our heart contracts and how calcium enters into our cells to activate many cellular processes. Now, because of magnesium's essential role in our body, Pickering in the journal Nutrients in 2020 reviews how magnesium deficiency may manifest as many things, such as fatigue, irritability, mild anxiety or nervousness, muscle weakness, muscle cramps, gastrointestinal upset, difficulty sleeping, and in general, a reduced ability to cope with stress. So how do we know if we have a magnesium deficiency? Well, some studies in physicians might test for circulating magnesium in our blood, but this is not necessarily an accurate indication if we have a deficiency or not, as not very much magnesium stays in our blood. It is primarily kept to our bones and muscle. 
For example, someone may have a normal magnesium blood level, but the magnesium in their cells or in their mitochondria may be below normal. The amount of magnesium inside the cells may be assessed by doing a muscle biopsy or a tissue biopsy, but this can be quite invasive and typically only done in research settings. There are some tests such as looking at serum ionized magnesium using NMR to test for free magnesium and magnesium retention tests that may be accurate indicators of magnesium sufficiency, but again, these tests are not readily available to the public either. So the easiest and most common way to assess magnesium status, albeit imperfect, is to assess the intake of magnesium from food and supplements in order to determine if adequate magnesium is being consumed. But in addition to looking at daily intake of magnesium, it is also important to consider if certain conditions may increase the use or need for magnesium. For example, high caffeine intake, alcohol consumption, high calcium or high protein diets, significant physical activity, excessive sweating, the use of medications like diuretics, antibiotics, aging, pregnancy, menopause, osteoporosis, inflammatory bowel disease, low calorie or restrictive diets have all been implicated and associated with magnesium deficiencies. So if we believe we may be low in magnesium, how much magnesium should we aim for in our diet? Well, the recommended dietary intake for adult women is 310 to 320 milligrams of magnesium per day. And for men, it is set at 400 to 420 milligrams per day. But these are estimates. Based on the importance of magnesium in energy production, it can be hypothesized that those expending a lot of energy, like athletes, might require higher levels of magnesium. Also, magnesium may be lost in our sweat as well, so excessive sweating may also increase the requirement for magnesium. Lucasi in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in the year 2000 reviews how physically active individuals may require more magnesium. They estimate that the grand majority of us do not consume enough magnesium, with estimates of approximately 76 to 86% of us not getting enough at the upper end. That's wild. Up to 86% of us are not getting enough magnesium. Deficiency may occur particularly in the context where individuals are exercising and consuming fewer calories in the hopes of weight loss. In this context, magnesium intake is of particular importance. That is because magnesium will be used at a higher capacity for the increased need for energy production. We may lose magnesium in our sweat as we exercise. We may lose magnesium if we are losing water weight. And we may also be taking in less magnesium if we are eating less food because we're cutting calories. Have you ever attempted to lose weight by cutting calories and increasing exercise? Do you hit a wall at some point and feel sluggish or have low energy? Perhaps feel more irritable? There can be a lot of reasons contributing to these feelings, such as low blood sugar levels, etc. But magnesium deficiency might be one cause of feeling sluggish and irritable. Perhaps we can take a look at how much magnesium we are getting from our diet and seeing if it is adequate. The paper that really piqued my interest in this topic was that review by Pickering in the journal Nutrients in 2020. Now they wrote a review on how stress, psychological or physical stressors, may induce magnesium loss and magnesium deficiency. And that deficiency may make it harder for our body to be able to cope with stress. Now that is quite the vicious cycle, isn't it? 
Stress can cause magnesium depletion, and magnesium depletion may cause stress. Some symptoms of magnesium deficiency include that irritability, feelings of nervousness, lack of energy, difficulty concentrating, and muscle weakness. You can imagine how these feelings would make it more difficult to handle stressful situations, right? If we don't have the energy, the patience, or calm to deal with situations, how much more difficult then that would be. So in the next few minutes, the data that I mentioned is coming from studies within this review by Pickering. Firstly, magnesium appears to be quite important for our mood stability and mental health. Magnesium is also required to convert the amino acid tryptophan to serotonin. Now, serotonin is an incredibly important molecule in our brain that is required for mood stability. In fact, many antidepressant medications aim to stabilize serotonin levels by increasing the retention of serotonin in the synapse of the brain. So if magnesium is deficient, it is possible that serotonin is not being produced adequately and could contribute to low mood. But how about when we are under stress? Now there's a concept called allostatic load, which is the functional and structural damage caused by the wear and tear of the body's resources in response to stress. And it is thought that magnesium is there to help buffer that stress, but over time, if that stress continues, magnesium may, de may be depleted, and this buffer system may break down. So how does a long-term stressor, whether that be psychological, like a demanding schedule or job, or a physical stressor, like cutting calories and intense exercise, how do those stressors lead to magnesium depletion? Well, our brain responds to stress via a multitude of mechanisms, but primarily via the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Now, stress hormones like cortisol may be released, and the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate may increase in particular brain regions as well. Sometimes when there's too much excitation, too much glutamate, this can lead to something called excitotoxicity. And this has been implicated as one of the potential mechanisms of mood disorders like depression and anxiety. For example, in the Journal of Psychopharmacology in 2017, a review was published on how too much excitatory activity within the brain, sometimes leading to excitotoxicity, meaning the cells are damaged or die because of far too much excitation, is implicated in contributing to many mood disorders and psychiatric conditions. That this imbalance exists between the excitation and the inhibitory signaling within and between some brain regions. Now, interestingly, magnesium works to inhibit and balance these stress symptoms. For example, by increasing the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA and by blocking one of the excitatory receptors, the NMDA receptor. Now, the NMDA receptor is of great interest as it perpetuates excitation in the brain. We need activity and excitatory activity in the brain in order for our brain to work. However, there are conditions in which there is just too much excitation in some brain regions, like that excitotoxicity or hyperexcitability I talked about. For example, we see too much excitation in the brain in the context of alcohol withdrawal, in epilepsy, and in some individuals living with depression, anxiety, or insomnia. So if we can block this NMDA receptor, it is possible that this excess excitatory transmission may be reduced. In fact, recent research on ketamine as a new potential antidepressant treatment seems to also increase magnesium inside the cell and is postulated as one of the mechanisms by which ketamine may improve mood in individuals battling with depression. 
But in order for magnesium to buffer the stress response, it also needs to leave the cell and to leave its duties of energy production. So let me give an analogy to help explain the role of magnesium in buffering this stress response. Magnesium is like the mediator in a conflict. Magnesium tries to create a compromise, a balance between the two opposing parties. I guess it's trying to balance the excitation and inhibition in our brain. But in order for the mediator to create that compromise, they have to leave their home. They have to leave their personal responsibilities behind. And they must go to the office to meet these two fighting parties. Now normally that's fine. Magnesium can do this. But if the fighting continues to happen, the mediator can become exhausted, depleted, and can't create a balance anymore. The conflict between the two parties will overwhelm the mediator. The mediator doesn't have time to go back home to tend to their personal responsibilities. This is what can happen when we have a long-term stress on our mind or long-term stress on our body. Magnesium tries to establish a balance, leaves the cell and tries to inhibit the stress response in the extracellular space, but if it is too busy and can't get back to the cell, then it can't make energy. It can't do its usual job. Magnesium can only do so if we keep getting enough magnesium in our diet. If we don't, that balance can't be achieved and stress takes over and makes us feel worse, hence the symptoms of deficiency. Does that analogy make sense? I hope it does. Essentially, magnesium exists to buffer our stress response, but if we continue to have that long-term stress, magnesium is going to become depleted and it can't buffer our stress anymore. So let's get into some of the science about magnesium and neurochemistry and mental health. Poshwat in the International Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology in 2014 conducted a study in rats to assess if magnesium could influence proteins in the brain involved in hyperexcitability. These scientists specifically looked at the brain regions of the hippocampus, the amygdala, and the prefrontal cortex. Now they induced a mild stress to the rats and noted an increase in receptors involved in excitability in these brain regions. But intake of magnesium prevented this upregulation of excitation-related proteins. So that's seen as a good thing. They also noted that the magnesium treatment reduced some measures of depression-like behavior in the rats. Interestingly, the scientists did not add magnesium to the diet but they actually provided magnesium as a daily injection of magnesium hydroaspartate at doses of 10, 15, or 20 milligrams per kilogram body weight. Now, in studies like this, injections are given in order to control exactly how much magnesium is in the body. Now, when magnesium is added to the diet, the amount of magnesium consumed, absorbed, and stored can be variable, and as a result, harder to see a clear difference in animal studies. So that would be the reason why that they gave it as an injection as opposed to putting it in the diet. So if this, is, if this is the case, if magnesium can help prevent the hyperexcitability brought on by stress, then are there clinical trials where individuals battling with mood disorders have been given magnesium to see if it can help with their symptoms? Well, let's dive into those. Boturin in the journal Nutrients in 2020 wrote a systematic review that included a multitude of clinical trials examining the link between magnesium and mental wellness. They noted associations of magnesium status, magnesium intake, and measures of anxiety and depression symptoms. That the greater or more adequate the magnesium intake, the better the mental health scores. They also noted that antidepressants seem to be associated with higher magnesium levels, 
and hypothesize that one of the mechanisms by which the antidepressants may exert their benefit on mood may be due to an increase in magnesium bioavailability. Phelan in the British Journal of Psychiatry conducted a meta-analysis where they pulled together several different clinical trials that aimed to see if magnesium supplementation could improve symptoms of depression. They included 58 different trials that included a total of over 45,000 people. So, what did the scientists find? Well, firstly, the scientists found that if patients ate a diet rich in magnesium, that the risk of having depression was lower versus people consuming a lower magnesium diet. But we need to keep in mind this is an association, not necessarily telling us that magnesium prevents depression. It is possible that it does, but it may also just mean that people without depression may eat a more nutritious diet or that there are other factors involved. For example, in episode 7 and episode 25, I go into the details of overall the associations of diet with mental health and wellness if you want to go back and listen to episode 7 or 25. The scientists also looked at magnesium blood levels in relation to risk of depression. But remember how I mentioned earlier, blood magnesium is not necessarily a good indicator of magnesium status, as magnesium is mostly in our bones and muscle. So this isn't a great assessment to make. Now, they also looked at intervention clinical trials, which is really the type of trial we want to look at, meaning a group of people are recruited in a study, and half are given placebo, half are given magnesium. We want to see, does it improve their symptoms of depression? Overall, the scientists found that the data was mixed. Some clinical trials found benefit, and some did not. Now, they couldn't quite pinpoint why some trials resulted in benefit and others did not, but I would hypothesize that perhaps some individuals were not deficient in magnesium and thus would not benefit. But how about we go through a recent intervention clinical trial on magnesium in mental health? Tarleton in the journal PLOS One in 2017 recruited 126 participants with moderate to severe depression. Now, approximately 37% of the participants were taking a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor or an SSRI, to treat their depression. 15% were taking a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, and about 23% were using non-medication therapies to treat their depression. So we had quite a heterogeneous group of individuals here. Half were in the control delayed group, meaning that they were observed for a control period without magnesium supplements, and that served as the control comparator, but then they received magnesium supplements later on. The other half of the participants were instructed to start immediately taking four 500 milligram tablets of magnesium chloride daily, which equated to a total of 248 milligrams of elemental magnesium per day. Now, the symptoms of depression were measured at baseline and after two, six, eight, and 12 week periods on the PHQ 9 scale, which is based on questions of individual symptoms and feelings. Now, the scientists noted a significant reduction in the PHQ-9 score or the depression symptom severity with magnesium supplementation. In fact, by two weeks, the PHQ-9 score went from 10 down to 5, and this was retained to the end of the study at 12 weeks. So the symptom severity reduced to half. Whereas in the delayed start control group, their score went from 10 to 8 without magnesium supplement. So a bit of a placebo effect. But then when they started magnesium supplements, their score dropped from 8 to 5. They also assessed symptoms of anxiety using the GAD-7 questionnaire. 
The scientists also noted a benefit with magnesium supplementation, lowering the score from on average 7.5 to 2.5 by 6 weeks, and again this was retained to the end of the study at 12 weeks. Now the more severe their depression or anxiety symptoms at baseline, the better the individual responded to magnesium supplementation. Interestingly, females also seem to respond slightly better to magnesium supplements versus men. So in this study population, where about half were taking antidepressant medications, magnesium supplementation appeared to make an improvement to their symptoms of depression and anxiety. So overall, some trials indicate a potential benefit of magnesium supplementation to symptoms of mood disorders, but not all patients benefit, which is to be expected with all interventions, particularly for mood disorders. Magnesium supplementation is likely to be a benefit individuals deficient in intracellular magnesium. So we can take a look at how much magnesium we may be getting from our diet by entering in a typical day's diet into a website and seeing how much we usually get. A website like nutritiondata.self.com. That's one of the few websites I've been able to find that includes a full breakdown of all the nutrients of the foods that we may eat. So again, that website was nutritiondata.self.com. Now, another reason why a magnesium deficiency may lead to symptoms like fatigue, irritability, and weakness is because of its relationship to potassium. Back in 1958, McIntyre and Davidson reported that magnesium deficiency may actually lead to potassium deficiency in the body, and this may explain some of the symptoms seen with inadequate magnesium intake. For example, they conducted a study in rats and fed them diets with differing levels of magnesium. They noted that the amount of magnesium in the diet was related to the amount of magnesium in the muscle, and this was correlated to the amount of potassium in the muscle. So this means an adequate diet in magnesium meant higher levels of magnesium and higher levels of potassium in the muscle versus a diet inadequate in magnesium. If the rats ate too little magnesium, then magnesium and potassium in the muscle was lower. Potassium in the muscle is incredibly important for energy production, mus muscular contraction, and general homeostasis. The lack of potassium would lead to general weakness. But we can also think of the importance of magnesium and potassium, not just in our skeletal muscles, but essential muscles like our heart as well. Dino Colantino in the journal Open Heart in 2018 writes of the importance of magnesium in heart health. Potassium and its relationship to magnesium are both incredibly important in the heart's ability to contract and to maintain a normal rhythm. Too much or too little potassium could cause heart arrhythmias and worst of all, cardiac arrest or for the heart to stop. Therefore, magnesium and potassium intake should be considered together not only for muscular strength and energy, but heart health as well. Sometimes individuals that are cutting calories, working out particularly hard and under a lot of stress may exhibit some heart palpitations. And occasionally, those heart palpitations could be due to inadequate magnesium and potassium in the diet. So, if someone is considered to have a magnesium deficiency, it is very important for us to also look at potassium and to look at the two in our diet together. So let's say we want to aim to get more magnesium in our diet. Let's talk about food sources. What are some good sources? For example, dark chocolate. That's a delicious source. One ounce of dark chocolate can give 64 milligrams, or about 16% of the recommended dietary intake. A whole avocado gives 58 milligrams, or 15% of the required intake. 
Nuts such as almonds, cashews, and Brazil nuts are great sources, where one ounce of almonds, for example, gives 20% the requirement. Lentils, chickpeas, and beans are a good source. For example, one cup of cooked black beans gives 30% the requirement. Seeds like pumpkin seeds, flaxseed, and chia seeds are a good source. One ounce of pumpkin seeds gives 37%, so pumpkin seeds are a really good source. One cup of cooked spinach gives 39%, so in general, green leafy vegetables are a good source too. And things like bananas, whole grains, fatty fish like salmon, and in general, leafy greens are all good sources. But let me give an example of what we could eat in one day to reach our goal for magnesium. If we ate these four foods, one ounce of pumpkin seeds, one ounce of dark chocolate, one cup of cooked spinach, and a banana, that would have us reach our goal for magnesium. Now, how about supplements? Now, a few studies have shown that soluble preparations are generally well-absorbed, and that forms like magnesium aspartate, citrate, lactate, and chloride have superior bioavailability compared to magnesium oxide and sulfate. But a side effect of magnesium supplementation has been noted, such as diarrhea and stomach upset. Now, it is suggested in general to obtain magnesium from the diet because these foods rich in magnesium also have many other healthful nutrients that are important to be in balance with magnesium, like potassium. And I have seen some electrolyte powders too that you can mix in water, and a lot of the times they contain both potassium and magnesium. Now, these might be beneficial for some particularly individuals that are having difficulty consuming enough food, like elderly individuals or individuals with stomach upset. But as always, please seek the advice of your physician or dietitian. As for example, an individual with kidney insufficiency or kidney failure needs to be very careful with limiting their potassium intake. So please always check with your physician first. So that is a wrap, my people, scientist army. Some scientific evidence on magnesium, stress, and our mental health. Magnesium is an incredibly important mineral in the context of our energy levels, our homeostasis, our muscle contractions, our heart functioning, and our ability to cope with stress. Physical and psychological stressors may increase the demand for magnesium and increase our risk of becoming deficient. Things like reducing calories, intense exercise, excessive sweating, medications like diuretics, lack of sleep, demanding schedules, these may increase the chances of a deficiency in magnesium because of the need for magnesium to buffer those stress responses. This magnesium deficiency may lead to symptoms like irritability, fatigue, weakness, gastrointestinal upset, and a reduced ability to handle and cope with stress. So if we believe that we might be deficient in magnesium, we can add some good sources like dark chocolate, pumpkin seeds, beans, lentils, whole grains, fatty fish, avocados, bananas, leafy greens, flax seeds, almonds, and cashews. Now, I hope that this information was empowering for you. If you feel like you've had a reduced ability to handle stress, something as simple as a magnesium deficiency might just be a large contributor to that. So I hope that this information was interesting and useful for you, for your friends, and for your family. If this episode helps even just one of you listening, then I am a happy girl. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be a part of your day today. Please feel free to leave me a comment, a like, tell a friend about the podcast. You can even buy me a coffee to say thanks for the episode. 
If you want to see some of the papers I mention in each episode, then make sure to follow me on social media. My handles are in the description box to this episode. I use Instagram the most if you by chance have the choice among the platforms. I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, and I look forward to meeting you back here for episode 123. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.